This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Father, as we come to this chapter this morning, we come humbly and we also come in some sense hungry that you would say things to us that would strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts and incline our wills and shape us into the people that you have called us to be. So we lift up our prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would help us in explaining and grasping and then putting into practice this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we've come to the middle chapter in our trip through the letter of Hebrews in the New Testament. If you're a visitor today, we're going through this letter called Hebrews and chapter 7 is the middle. The question that we're really faced with in the letter, and especially this morning, is the question of whether it's worth it to be a Christian. That is, if you give up what Christ calls on you to give up, and if you take on what Christ calls on you to take on, which will be costly, will he compensate? Is he worth it? That is a very businessy question to ask, and it is a very reasonable question to ask, and it's a very sensible and a very honest question to ask, is it worth it, or are we fools? Because Jesus himself said, before you follow, use your brains. Think about whether it's worth it following Christ. Now, if uh, you have heard of a book called The High Price of Heaven, which came out a number of years ago, written by a Sydney journalist, the argument was, it is not worth it. Christ is not worth it. He's asking too much. You shouldn't follow him, but you should give up. If you've read the great classic Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know that it's the story of a man traveling from conversion to the promised land. And there are many on the journey who give up following Christ. Uh, Some of them give up for the fact that the cost is too great. Some of them give up because the world is too alluring. Think of a character like Mr. Facing Both Ways, who could never quite decide whether Christ was Lord. Some of the characters in Pilgrim's Progress gave up because of doubt and unbelief. Now, these readers called the Hebrews for whom this letter was written, they have a completely different reason for giving up and going backwards. And their reason is that their old religion, Judaism, looked more reasonable. That Christianity was too difficult and Judaism, their old faith, looked more reasonable. And of course, um, God had put Judaism in place And it had been going for 2,000 years by the time the gospel was preached. And so it's a very established and impressive religion. And not only that, of course, it was more physically real. There was a temple and there was a priesthood and there was an altar and there were sacrifices. And it was safer because it was a government-protected religion, whereas this new sect called Christianity was dangerous and it was all hanging on a man who'd lived and died and gone away and had left behind some promises and called on his people to be people of faith. See, we need to get our heads into the Hebrew tension because if we understand what the Hebrews were facing, 
then we'll grasp a little of the wonder of the letter. Now, of course, we're not tempted to go back to Judaism, but there are many Christians today who are tempted to give up their Christian faith and go back to their old religion. There are many people today who are choosing an easier religion than Christianity. There are many today who are choosing the very uh, inviting and powerful world and therefore are putting on the census, no religion, how convenient. But there are many people in the world of the Hebrews and there are many people today who are asking, why don't we do something easy? Why don't we do something comfortable? That's what the writer is addressing and he wants his readers and us as well to know that attaching ourselves to Christ is infinitely wise and infinitely worthwhile. I have a great fear for myself and a great fear for you as well, many of you here at St Thomas's, and that is not that um, Christianity will fly out of your head, I don't think it will, or that you will stop in some kind of bodily way from doing the occasional Christian thing, I don't think you will, but my great fear is that your heart will invisibly and secretly and imperceptibly but genuinely attach itself to something which is perishing and then you'll follow your heart. That is a great fear, a great fear. Now what we've seen in Hebrews so far is that the writer has told us that Jesus is God and man, perfect as a mediator and that he is king and saviour, and that he's powerful and he's sympathetic, and he's able and he's willing. You just don't get a better person in the universe to belong to than Jesus Christ. And that's why all the warnings are there. Don't give up on him. Don't turn back. And that's why all the promises are there. Keep trusting him. That's what Hebrews is calling us to. Now, as we come to chapter 7, the writer is going to do a very unusual thing. He's going to make use of an Old Testament character called Melchizedek. And he's going to teach us that Melchizedek is like an object lesson pointing us to Christ who is superior. And he wants us to know that Christ is superior so that we will know that he is infinitely worthwhile to trust and obey. So I want to think of it under two headings this morning. First, Melchizedek, the model, and then Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. Verses 1 to 10, Melchizedek, the model, and then 11 to 28, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. First of all, Melchizedek, the model. Melchizedek was a king in the Old Testament. He appears for three verses in Genesis 14 at the time of Abraham. Abraham had just won a victory, and as he was returning home with the spoils, out came Melchizedek, king of Salem, and Salem became Jerusalem, and Melchizedek basically congratulated Abraham, uh, entertained him, gave him hospitality, and blessed him in the name of God. And Abraham gave to Melchizedek, this great king, a tenth of the spoils. Now, who is this man, Melchizedek? Is he a normal historical figure? Is he some kind of angel? Is he a theophany, an appearance of God? Is he a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus before the incarnation? Uh, There's only one other brief mention of Melchizedek in the whole Bible, and that's in the whole Old Testament, and that's Psalm 110. 
And then the New Testament writers seem totally disinterested in him except the writer to the Hebrews. And the writer of the Hebrews is interested in him because, let's be blunt, he's useful for the writer's argument. He is grabbing Melchizedek to make him an object lesson for what he wants to say about Jesus. Just as a New Testament writer might decide to make a big thing of Noah or Enoch or Elijah, this writer is going to make a big thing of Melchizedek. And here are five things that he wants us to know that come from the passage. First of all, Melchizedek was a king, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. His name means king of righteousness. And he was a king of a place called Salem. And Salem is a place that means peace. Um, Salem, shalom, come from the same root word. So here is a historical character called Melchizedek. His name means king. He rules a place. And uh, therefore, because he's king of righteousness, that's his name, and because he's king of peace, that's his place, it sounds very useful. It sounds very like Jesus. Is it just a coincidence that his name means king of righteousness and his place is peace? No, there is God placing somebody, no doubt, in the Old Testament who is going to be an object lesson for believers forever. And that's what this writer wants us to know. Melchizedek was a king. Second, Melchizedek was a priest. Verse 2, that is, he probably acted as a way of helping his people relate to God. Maybe he offered the sacrifices, we don't know. But uh, there was no one in Israel who got to be a king and a priest. If you were a king and you grabbed the role of priest, like Saul did, you got punished. If you're a priest and you pretended that you were a king for a day, you'd probably be executed. So nobody in Israel was a king and a priest. I don't know if the name Gerald Stone means anything to you, but uh, he was the guy who Kerry Packer asked to launch 60 Minutes back in 1979. And Gerald Stone has just written his memoirs, and he says that uh, one particular evening he was watching one of the early episodes of 60 Minutes, and uh, he'd had a few drinks. And in the middle of the program, Kerry Packer rang him and said, what do you think of the show? I don't think too much of the show. And uh, Gerald Stone says that uh, because he was a little intoxicated, he had an absolute four or five minute rant at Kerry Packer over the phone. What a brave thing to do. And um, he finished up basically along the way saying, you know, what would you know about anything? But he finished up by saying, and in the end, there's four million people watching this program and you're only one man. And there was a very long pause. And Kerry Packer, who was funding the whole program, said, well, I would have thought I'd count for at least two. <laughs> now, I don't want to draw a messianic link between Kerry Packer and Jesus, except to say that nobody in Israel was two people. Nobody got to be king and priest. But long before the Israelites was a man called Melchizedek. And he sets the precedent there was a person who was king and priest. And the Bible, of course, is telling us that there will be a person who will be king and priest. And if you don't think that's significant, let me tell you that if Jesus is king, he runs the universe. And if he's the priest, he solves our salvation. And if that doesn't seem impressive to you, think hard about it. Because he's got all the power and he's got all the ability. 
He's got all the authority and he's got all the saving grace. And that's exactly what this world needs. And this writer is basically saying Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Thirdly, verse 3, Melchizedek had no time frame. Very strange verse. He was without father, mother, genealogy, beginning of days or end of life. He remains a priest forever. Now this looks like a very spooky thing to say about Melchizedek and it makes it look as though he must be divine. But the writer is not saying that Melchizedek is God. Listen very carefully. He's simply saying that the Genesis record leave those details out. The author of Genesis is perfectly capable of writing who is somebody's father and who is somebody's mother. The author of Genesis is perfectly capable of telling us somebody's genealogy if he wants to, but there is no record. And the writer of Hebrews latches onto this and says, isn't this helpful? There is somebody in the Genesis record who has no father, mother, beginning, end. That's like Jesus. Because Jesus as God, of course, had no mother, and Jesus as man had no earthly father. So here is the writer basically using again Melchizedek to teach that Jesus is superior forever. He has no time frame. Fourth, Melchizedek was a blesser. Verse 7, he blessed Abraham. Melchizedek the king blessed Abraham the nomad. Melchizedek gave Abraham food and drink. Those of you who like amusing details in the Bible may be interested to know that in Genesis 14, Melchizedek actually gave Abraham bread and wine. And you can imagine that if you were interested in writing a Eucharistic communion-dominated letter, you would go crazy about the bread and the wine. But this writer is not the slightest bit interested in recording that Melchizedek gave Abraham bread and wine because he is interested in something much more significant, and that is that Melchizedek is a signpost to Jesus, who is the blesser, who is able to give the blessing. And uh, because Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, he blessed Abraham. And we therefore must recognize that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And because he points to Jesus, Jesus is greater than all. The fifth and last thing to say about Melchizedek is that he was a taker. He took a tenth of the spoils, verses 4 to 10. Normally a priest would go around and take a tenth from the people, but here is Melchizedek taking a tenth from Abraham. And therefore, Melchizedek is superior because he is the taker of the tithe. And a um, little complicated verse at the end, but even the Jewish priests, who are some way down the historical line of Abraham and would normally be taking the tenth, are here giving the tenth. Now, I just want to say to you, if all of this makes no sense to you, that you and I are not meant to get too preoccupied with Melchizedek. He's not meant to fascinate us. He's just a signpost. Uh, Bill Dumbrell says in his commentary, he's not being cast as a supernatural being. He is a foil. And um, God has therefore put a man in the days of Abraham <clears throat> who's got some very great lessons to teach us 
which will help us appreciate Jesus. And that's what we go to now, Jesus, the fulfillment, point number two. Now, we would, of course, um, ignore Genesis 14, except that smack bang in the Old Testament, in the Psalm 110, which was a very important psalm, God says to somebody in that psalm, you're going to rule and you're going to be the high priest forever. And this psalm, of course, written in the time of David, when he was the king and, of course, the priesthood was flourishing, absolutely gripped the Jewish people. Somebody is going to be a king and a priest. Who is that person? And now the writer uses this quote in Psalm 110 to tell us that the fulfillment is Jesus Christ and therefore that you are not to give up on Jesus Christ because he's the king and you won't get any authority outside Jesus that will really work for you and you won't get any salvation outside Jesus Christ that will really work for you. Idi Amin, the dictator back in the 70s, the great um, megalomaniac from Uganda, decided that he needed to be taken seriously, and so he wrote his own identity. And this is the way he was to be referred to. He wrote this. This is the way you were to address him, especially if you wrote to him. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth. It's hard to read this with a straight face, really. And fishers of the sea, conqueror of the British Empire in Africa. That's how you were to address him. And I suppose if you're kind of a dictatorial crazy and you don't deserve anything, you just have to invent something and stick it on yourself. Now, the writer is saying this is the complete opposite when it comes to Jesus Christ. He has the most amazing qualifications that he deserves, and if you were to miss them, you'd be crazy. And that's why he proceeds to tell us five things about Jesus. Verse 11. First, Jesus is needed. The Jewish system failed. Verse 18, it was weak. It was useless. Verse 19, it could not fix things. Somebody had to come who would replace the Jewish ritual system. It's not that it was bad. It's just that it was powerless. It couldn't actually solve our problem. It couldn't substitute for us and pay for us. It was just using the animals. And therefore, says the writer, Jesus is necessary. Someone had to come who would do what the whole Jewish ritual system was only pointing to. Second, Jesus was promised, verses 20 to 21. God made an oath that he would come. The Lord swore by himself, you are a priest forever. He says in Psalm 110, Jesus comes with an oath behind him. Not just a promise, but an oath. And therefore, says the writer to his Hebrew friends, if you're worried about Judaism being replaced, if you think that's a disaster, let me tell you that Jesus came not just with a promise, not just to do the job, but he came with an oath from God. The third thing about Jesus is he's better. This little word better comes 17 times in the book of Hebrews, and it's probably the theme of the letter. Jesus is better. The work he does is better. The salvation he brings is better. He's the guarantee of a better covenant. Why is he better? Well, because, listen carefully, he solves the distance 
problem. What is the problem between God and the human race? It is distance caused by our sin. Our sin means we're guilty and God is rightly angry. There is distance. What are the religions of the world trying to do? They're trying to build a bridge. How are they basically building the bridge? They're doing it by getting people to try and do stuff. But the only bridge that will come between a holy God and sinful people is the bridge that God builds, which is his son, who has come from heaven to earth died on the cross to build a bridge which is capable of carrying any believer across. And here is the writer basically telling us that Jesus Christ has come to solve the problem of separation by bringing reconciliation. And what Jesus did for the leper in the New Testament, you remember, was to approach and to heal And what Jesus does for the sinner is to approach and to save. So he's better. Then fourth, he's forever. Verse 21. All the priests came from Levi. They were all human. They all died on the job. But there is one priest called Jesus who is alive forever because he rose and he does his work forever. Therefore, it doesn't matter how long you live. It doesn't matter how long your children live, your grandchildren they will find in Jesus the perfect priest forever. That's why F.B. Meyer says in his saintly way, don't draw a line in your head which limits the power and the grace of Jesus. It is very human for you to draw a line and say, he couldn't help, he wouldn't help. But he can and he does. And the last thing about Jesus is that he's perfect Verses 23 to 28, he's able to save completely. He's not in the quicksand like we are. He's outside the quicksand. He can drop the rope. He can lift us out. He can save us. Everything about Jesus is wonderful. Now, this may seem like a very technical and abstract chapter to us this morning. We may be scratching our head thinking, why would we even study this chapter? But I hope you can see that Melchizedek is being used as a great object lesson to point to Jesus, who is a great king and saviour. And I want to finish by asking you some quick questions. And they go like this. Do you notice how Abraham treated Melchizedek? Very reverently, very respectfully, And we need to respond to Jesus infinitely more with great respect and great reverence, if possible. No, absolutely necessary, kneeling down before him and basically giving everything to him. That's the way to respond to Jesus. Do you notice how Jesus supersedes Judaism? And therefore, he teaches us not to trust in outward things like this building or membership of a church or baptism or server sheets or coffee or links with clergy or anything that's outward. But we're to trust in Jesus, his death and his promises. Do you see that Jesus is supreme and superior to every other person who's ever come into the world and therefore why the other religions of the world in the end are a tragedy, sincerely followed but a tragedy because they don't have Jesus and therefore mission is loving. 
Do you see also that undervaluing Jesus and thinking perhaps the world is better, but I think I can slip Jesus into my back pocket as well, is again just a tragedy. You've devalued the one who has all the value and you've highly valued and overvalued the things that don't have the value. And do you see how Jesus is the one that we can approach and speak to and find power and sympathy beyond this world? I wouldn't be surprised if the bulk of people who are here this morning are not wrestling with one or two issues which they can hardly articulate, whether it's got to do with a grief or a struggle or a sin, some kind of battle, some kind of sadness, and it just haunts you. And maybe it's even crossed your mind, I should go and see a counsellor. Maybe you've even gone to see a counsellor, which is a very good thing to do. I simply want to ask the question, have you got round to sitting or kneeling and talking to the greatest counsellor in heaven and earth, that is Jesus Christ, not because you're necessarily going to get an immediate solution and a quick fix, but because you'll be talking to somebody who has all the power and all the sympathy and all the love and all the wisdom and all the understanding and all the resources. And that's why, friends, he outweighs all the costs of being a Christian. Whatever they are, they're going to look so little and so small, especially in the light of eternal blessings. So let's bow our heads and thank him together. Our Father, we give you thanks for this chapter and we recognise a signpost in this Melchizedek character pointing us to somebody in the Lord Jesus, your Son, our Lord, our Saviour, our High Priest, who is infinitely precious. And we pray, our Father, that you would forgive us for undervaluing him in our mind and heart. And we pray that you would impress upon us the truths that are here, and then that you would incline our heart to walk in the way of those truths. We pray that you would help us. You who have saved us, please graciously help us with all the resources which he came to bring. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.